Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. And uh, we are starting a brand new series this morning. Um, I have to share my iPad. This has nothing to do with the sermon. It's not even that spiritual, but I have to share it. My iPad, uh, for most of the part during the week, just sits in my bedroom on my bedside table. Okay? Um, you think I would have learned after all the years in youth ministry, you never leave your device just laying around, around children or teenagers. Okay? I opened my iPad this morning for the first time, and uh, I see, I wouldn't even show you because he might be embarrassed, but I see a picture of my youngest son making a very interesting face, and he, sh- he saved it as my lock screen. So I opened my iPad, oh, I'm like, oh, jeez, what in the world? So if you have children above like seven up until 1920, okay, keep your devices, okay, like don't let the camera be automatically accessible because... Every Wednesday night, I'd walk in the youth group, and I'd leave for a while. I'd leave my iPad on my stand, my music stand that I would teach from, because I don't use a music stand for nothing else. But, um, uh, yeah, praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. And all the people said amen. Um, but I would, I would leave my iPad sitting there, and then we would be, like, you know, talking to the kids or whatever. And uh, I'm not going to tell you who, but uh, someone in the room... Um, and her cousin. So the cousin's name is Kendra Blount. I'm not going to tell you who the other person is, but she would do this often too, her and Kendra. Um, she, uh, they, would, they would open my iPad up and then take these crazy face pictures, you know, or whatever, and then close it. So every time I'd go to open my iPad for my lesson, I would get the shock of these very interesting facial expressions. And so anyway, I just opened my iPad and I forgot about it again. And oh, there it is again. So Uh, But Mark chapter 14, we're going to read just a few verses in just a moment, and we're starting a brand new series this morning. Uh, The name of the series is He's Still Got the Whole World in His Hands. He's Still Got the Whole World in His Hands. And I don't know about you, but there's sometimes we don't really really live like we believe that, do we? I'm just being real. I believe it. I don't know that I've ever not believed it since I've been a follower of Christ. I believe that God is God. And that he is working his global purpose and plan throughout all of human history. And he will continue to do so as he sees fit. But there's so many times in our lives. And I know right now, you know, with everything going on. I know right now it's more of a heightened time of this. But let's be honest. This is true of life. Right? Maybe not on the same scale globally or nationally. But every individual in this room, when others seem to be doing fine, there's times in your life where you feel like, God, do you still have the world in your hands? Maybe individually you went through something. Maybe back in 2008 when the recession hit and all this stuff happened and people lost their jobs and lost their homes and and all of this. Maybe you went through a season like that then. And you knew as a believer, you know theologically he does. But practically you wonder, but do you really? And so I want to encourage you this morning. Before we even get into the series, the answer is yes. He does still have the whole world in his hands. I'm so excited over the next three weeks to lift our hearts to the Lord and to watch him change our focus, our perspective that we would actually begin to or continue to dwell in the power and plan of our amazing Savior. 
That over the next three weeks, we will, we will designate time to say, God, I'm going to still trust you even when I don't get it. I'm going to trust you even when it seems crazy around me. Listen, the world is crazy right now. There's so much hatred and violence and anger and bitterness and judgment. And yet God is on his throne and God's plan has never changed. You know what God's purpose is in the world? To see people come to know Christ. And that those who know Christ will share it with others that they would come to know Christ. That we might be able to enjoy God and glorify him forever in everything we eat and everything we drink and whatsoever we do. That we would glorify him and him alone. That that's, and if I had to summarize it, God is about his glory and drawing people to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they would understand what it means to be saved to be redeemed, and to be with him forever. John chapter 14, that where I am, there you may be also. That's why he came. He came that we would have a relationship with him, to know him, be changed by him, so that others may see him in us, that they would come to know him, and together as the body of Christ, we would glorify our Lord. So I pray that over the next three weeks, that our hearts and our minds would be lifted, our eyes would be fixed on the things of Christ. That yes, as, as there's things swirling around us, that we can be the voice of the gospel in the people's lives. That we can share with confidence. And he's still got the whole world in his hands. You see, uncertainty is nothing new. Uncertainty is nothing new. Times are uncertain, but God is not. Now, maybe you need to write that down. When I put that in my notes, I had to kind of hit that a few times in my mind. Times are uncertain, but God is not. God is not uncertain. God is not surprised. Like when I opened my iPad this morning for the first time since last week, I was surprised. You could, you could say I was shocked. Okay? But God doesn't, God doesn't look at the world today and go, I never saw this coming. Who knew? Like he didn't pull the angels aside and say, did you, I mean, did you expect this? Jesus, Holy Spirit, did you guys see this coming? God doesn't do that. No, God is unshaken on his throne and he always will be. Nothing moves him from his throne. He is constant and he is certain about his plan. One of the most dramatic moments in human history took place in what has been called and described as the upper room experience. Jesus and his disciples gathered for the Passover meal, an annual meal they observed. The Passover meal is a time where Jewish families gathered to eat to commemorate the night before the morning when the nation would be released from Egyptian captivity. It was a meal eaten to remember God's faithfulness after 400 years of seeming faithlessness. Think about that. When you go back and you read the Old Testament, and these families gathered together to celebrate what God was doing to set them free after 400 years of seeming faithlessness, they gathered to celebrate the faithfulness of God. 400 years during which the Jewish people lived as slaves, but eventually became a nation. 400 years of unanswered prayer. 400 years of harsh treatment. But at last, God had sent a deliverer, Moses, who stood up to the most powerful man on the planet in Pharaoh and demanded that he let God's people go. And powerful reality when we realize these people, generation after generation 
believed God had forgotten them. I mean, how could God be, be working in this chaos? How could God be working in all of this? 400 years of slavery and harsh treatment. And yet God sent a deliverer. There's a verse when you go back, it actually says, I've heard the cry of my people. I'm so thankful that when we don't think he does, he hears the cry of his people. Amen. He hears the cry of our hearts, even though we don't think he does, or we don't see things changing the way they should, as we determine they should change. Moses walked into that Pharaoh's courtroom and said, let God's people go. Now we know the story, all that unfolded. But ultimately what happened? God came through and they were released and delivered. Time and time again throughout history of not only the Jewish nation, but the word of God, we see God delivering time and time again. Now fast forward 1,400 years or so later, Jesus is gathered with his disciples to commemorate that historic event. But the disciples are a bit distracted. Things aren't going as well as they had hoped. You see, their popularity has diminished. I mean, imagine you're a disciple of Christ, right? I mean, you're, you're ushered into this amazing moment of miracle after miracle, and you're believing this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God. And you look at how he's popular, right? Thousands flocked to him, and you get to be on the inner circle. You're, you're on the inner part of that. You're just kind of close to Jesus. Yeah, I'm his disciple. Yep, I'm with him. Okay. And your popularity is growing. I mean, people are flocking to you day and night. They just want to be around you because you're around Jesus. And then over the course of three, three and a half years, roughly, things begin to change, don't they? All of a sudden, the popularity starts to kind of switch a little. Yeah, you're still popular, but not really for the good things you were once popular for, that you thought you were popular for. All of a sudden, now there's this rumbling in the religious community about wanting to arrest your, your rabbi, your Messiah, wanting to arrest and, and even put to death Jesus Christ. All of a sudden now you begin to be fearful even to gather together with him, even to travel to locations with him because, man, what if tonight's the night? What if tonight's the night where they come for us? You see, they sit down to this meal, but it was a little different than maybe the years previously. Things were a little uncertain at this time. The certainty they had grown accustomed to was gone. Now there were more questions than answered. Jesus has been speaking more and more about his death. What's that about? About this persecution that's going to come? About this cup that he has to drink? Like, what is, he, what is all this about? As they gathered for their annual feast, things got even crazier. Mark chapter 14, verse 17. Mark 14 and verse 17 says this. And in the evening he comes with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dips with me in the dish. There's so much in there. And we're going to even read farther in just a few minutes. But let's pray and ask God to affirm these things in our heart. Father, I pray that we would, as we read this account, we would understand deeper that, that we all, everyone in this room, number one, as human beings in a fallen world, we go through uncertain times and we face unique and difficult challenges. But as followers of Christ, Lord, we see that we even face not only the everyday challenges of life that everyone faces, but we face that persecution that comes from the enemy, the persecution that comes from sin, 
We face the difficulties of those that stand against the things of Christ. And so now we get lumped in with all of that, Lord. Father, there's, there's a level of uncertainty that comes in this world. Even as followers of Christ, we, we can go through seasons like this. And I pray that, Lord, a couple of things, that, that when we go through those seasons as an individual, that we would remember that it's not abnormal, but normal, that we're not alone, that others, great men and women of the faith, have been right where we were, that we wouldn't beat ourselves up or tear ourselves down, but we would run to you and fall on your, or fall before you and receive your grace and mercy in those times, that we would be honest and we would admit that, as we talked about last week, Lord, that we believe you can do all things, but help my unbelief, that we wouldn't tear ourselves down or allow the enemy to convince us that somehow we're not, quote-unquote, a good Christian because we have doubts or we have times of struggle and seasons of life. But the other thing, Lord, is I pray that as we, as believers, have maybe come through seasons like that, and now we, we look back and we have a confidence that, that has come through the fires of refinement, that we know that you are still on your throne. And as we're having conversations with people that are maybe not there yet, maybe they're struggling in those seasons, I pray that we'd be so careful to speak words of compassion. Truth, yes, but truth in love. And that we would desire to encourage other believers to keep their eyes on you in difficult times, that we would guard against judgmental attitudes or, or condemning words, that we would look down on other believers who aren't quite where we are now, but we'd realize that we're all on this journey for your glory, and I pray that we would do all we can to encourage other believers to realize that you've still got the whole world in your hands. Nothing's changed. And so wherever we're at in that spectrum of life, Lord, or maybe we're somewhere in the middle, we know, but we still have some doubts. I pray that you'd help us to understand deeper what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means to trust you and to realize that even in uncertain times, you're still working your plan and your purpose. Father, we ask that you'd affirm these things in our hearts by the working of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of what we find in Scripture was written in times and environments of extreme uncertainty. This book, this Word of God, is not filled with good feel-good messages for a world we don't live in. The book is not filled with feel-good messages for a world we don't live in. They're real stories of genuine people going through real and genuine struggles and trials and blessings and glories. It's the ebb and flow of life on every page, and we can read it with great confidence. It is the Word of God, and we can draw from it by the work of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom and guidance to live tomorrow for His glory. Here we find God actively speaking and directing in uncertain times. Let me give you a couple of examples before we get back into Mark. How about Joseph in the Old Testament? Did you ever think about Joseph's situation? Listening to his brothers debate whether to kill him or sell him. He's laying in this hole, quite deep hole most likely. He most likely suffered physical injury when he was thrown into the hole. And he's listening to his brothers argue and debate, do we kill him? Do we sell him? What do we do? And he's thinking, God, you gave me a dream that you said I would be of a position of authority over them. And here I sit in the bottom of this pit, and they may even kill me before I see tomorrow morning. But you find out what? What was true in that moment? God was with him. Amen? God was with Joseph in the pit. We know this from the story. But see, that's the benefit we have. We can look back and go, I can see the end of the story. But imagine you didn't know the end of the story for a moment. Did you think Joseph debated, God, are you there? <laughs> you still got this thing? How about King David when he was awakened one morning to the rumor that his own son was conspiring against him to overthrow him? 
How about a frightened mother that wrapped her baby in a blanket and put him in a basket so that the Egyptian soldiers couldn't kill him? Do you think she felt a little uncertain? Do you think she questioned, God, are you still in this? But she trusted, and we know that man, that baby became the man that we just talked about who led a nation free. Years later, another mother flees her home with her newborn son to escape the sword of Herod, that being Mary, the mother of Christ, and her husband Joseph. Uncertain times. And think about this for a moment. You're Mary, you're Joseph, right? Jesus is born, okay? I always say this, on a not-so-silent night, right? We always sing that song, Silent Night. I understand I'm not trying to pop your bubble, but when you've got shepherds showing up and angels in the multitude singing and praising God, it's not silent night, right? It was just a crazy night. And you see all these great things that God is doing, and then you think, man, God, you're going to do something great here. And then you get to hear this rumor that Herod's going to kill the children. So you flee. And did you think, do you think that Mary and Joseph sat one night in Egypt and go, how's God going to work this one out? I know I would. <laughs> God, how are you going to do anything in this? This isn't what I thought you would do. How are you going to work in this? And yet God worked his plan. The Apostle Paul thought God had called him, and he did. But he ends up finding himself in a Roman prison. He writes to us about what to do when God's promises don't seem to be coming true time and time again. And he says this, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Whether I'm full to the point of stuffed, this is my, if you want to call it John's amplified version, right? I'm full to the point of stuffed or I'm so starving I think I'm going to die. He says, in whatever state I'm content because I have Christ. And yet we read this man who died outside the city of Rome, beheaded for his faith. He's the greatest Christian missionary we've ever read of. wrote a third of the New Testament. You see, God works in uncertain times. The Word of God is the perfect place to come in times of uncertainty. The Bible is filled with stories of people facing uncertainty and discovering that not only is God not absent, He is often diligently at work accomplishing His will in this world and in the lives of those he loves. When we read these stories, we find out that during these times, God is not not only not absent, but he's actually working his plan. We are reminded that God still has the whole world in his hands. We are challenged to trust him when it's hard to find him, understand him, or how about maybe even manage him. I said this a few months ago in a series, that God is not an on-demand God. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that we get to demand of God, do this now. People say, well, doesn't the Bible say for him to, for us to trust or to, to try him? No, no, no. That's speaking about when you give faithfully that God will show a reward of growing your faith and providing for you. But we don't dare stand with fists of challenge and say, I, you're going to do this now. It's not in the book. But yet we pray this way, we think this way. God, I would trust you if you would just change this. God, I'll believe in you, and I'll trust you if you'll just make this stop. God, I want to believe in you, but you're letting this happen. And yet he says over and over again, but I never told you to believe in me because I did or didn't do that. I asked you to believe in me because I am God, and my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again. And that is the way of salvation. That is why we believe in him, because he is God. Not because he does and jumps through this hoop or that hoop or does this or does that. Praise God for answered prayer. Praise God that he is, he is faithful 
that when we pray in Jesus' name, according to the will of God, that he will answer our prayers for his glory. But let's not get it twisted and think that somehow he's an on-demand God. When things don't go the way we think they should, we trust because he is trustworthy. The story in Mark chapter 14, now that we kind of get a little bit of an understanding of how God works in moments like what these disciples are going through, it continues on. Because we know the end of the story, the next few words have extraordinary significance. But they are completely lost on the 12 because of the situation they are in. What just was said? Jesus just told the disciples what's going to happen. One of them will do what? You can answer. Betray him. Now we know who betrays him. Judas, Iscariot, right? We know the story. We know that he, he sells him out for uh, 30 pieces of silver, right? Sells him as a slave, basically. That's the going rate. Betrays him, meets him in the garden, betrays him with a kiss, right? But yet when you, when, you, when you think in this moment, what did the disciples do collectively when Jesus said, one of you will betray me? What did they all begin to think and some verbalize? Is it do you know what that tells me? Every one of them knew it could be them. Every one of them. Is it me? Could it be me? Hey, ask him if it's me. Remember? Leaning over to, hey, John, ask him. You're the closest to him. Another gospel says that he was uh, laying on his bosom. Okay? Really weird to hear that, okay, in our culture today. It doesn't mean that he was like nestled up to Jesus. Okay, that's not what it means. What it means is he was sitting the closest to him. He was near him the nearest to him. Some think it means physically, which it did. Some also think it means kind of figuratively that John was really, really close to Jesus. But you, you notice that they didn't even want to ask out loud. Some of them, they just leaned over and said, hey, ask him if it's me. They all believed they could do it. They all believed they were capable of betraying Jesus. After three and a half years of ministering with Jesus, and Judas does it, and we go, oh, I can't believe Judas did that. They all just said they could do it. Scary reality check. If we were in that room, You'd be tempted. No, I'd never betray Christ. You know what's funny is people say, I can't believe Peter denied Jesus three times in one night. How many times have I denied Jesus in my life? Not by not saying I don't believe in Jesus, because I've never done that. I've never publicly, you know, rejected my faith. But how many times have we been prompted by the Spirit of God to speak for Christ or to lead someone to Christ by sharing the gospel with them, and we stay silent because we're fearful what they're going to say about us? You know what you just did by your actions and by your silence? Now, here's the beauty of it. We didn't lose our salvation in that moment either. We know him. He gives us grace, and he reminds us by the work of the Spirit, say, hey, listen, that still small voice that says you kind of missed this opportunity. We're, we're convicted unto repentance, which is good and healthy. But then we need to turn and say, God, forgive me for that, but help me to have the boldness to speak next time. And then we just look for tomorrow. We look for the next opportunity. The disciples here, they all understood they could betray him at any moment. Jesus goes on to say this in this crazy upper room experience, verse 22. Uh, we're going to read verse 21. I'm sorry, I must have missed that one. I think we stopped at verse 20, correct? Yeah, okay. I was just making sure you knew where we were in the text. I wanted to make sure you were aware. No, I just skipped. I didn't write it down. Okay, verse 21. The Son of Man indeed goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for the man that he had never been born. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and break it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Verse 23, And he took the cup, when he had given thanks, he, give, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for 
many. Shed for many. Verse 25. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And what we just read is an amazing foreshadowing of what's to come. The event that will be celebrated for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, the church has gathered and commemorated what Jesus just initiated Buildings built because of it. Wars fought over it. A worldwide movement began. You see, God is about to make his move on behalf of the world, but everything seems to be moving backwards and getting worse. What did he just talk about? What is he initiating there at this Last Supper? He actually initiates what we call what? Communion, right? Or the Lord's Supper. He takes the elements that were there on the table as they're commemorating God moving 1,400 years prior, setting his people free, Jesus takes the same elements and says, now let me show you true freedom. Let me show you how you can be free, not just physically from the chains of slavery and bondage, but free from the chains and bondage of sin forever. He says, this this bread that you're going to eat, it's like my body which is broken for you. This cup that you're going to drink, it's like my blood which is shed for you. It sounds really gory, but listen... They understood exactly what he was saying. He's saying, I'm going to be that sacrificial lamb for you. And I'm going to begin something this night that you can't even possibly understand. But for 2,000 years, people all over the world will gather in homes and in churches and break bread and share a cup and know Jesus is Messiah. A movement began. But when you read this there, do you think the disciples were like, wow, something's really going to come out of this. Something really good's going to come out of this. Man, I'm so excited for this. Or do you think they're all still going, man, who's going to betray him? They're so distracted. They're not getting the full picture just yet. We read it. We know the end of the story. But then it gets even a little weirder. It gets a little worse. Verse 27. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. Verse 28. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Now we're going to stop right there. But what what did Jesus just say to these disciples? You're you're all going to be offended because of me. You're going to be scattered this night. And it's crazy to me that if you think about the the, the conversation that's going on, it went from, okay, we're not really sure what's going on here, to Jesus says, one of you will deny me me and betray me. One of you will turn your back on me. Then he goes on to say, I'm going to do this for you. This is going to be my body broken for you, my blood spilled for you. Then he says, by the way, all of you will scatter because of me. I mean, if you're a disciple right now, you're like, what, God, what are you doing? Like, what is going on right now? Then verse 29 But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. See, he refers to an event that will change everything. What's the event he's talking about? That he's going to be arrested and tried and crucified for the sins of the world. But it is really too dark for them to find hope. They don't know where hope is coming from. They don't understand the full picture. And then Peter speaks for all of us. Peter says what we all think we would say. Not I. Man, you ever told the Lord, not I? You know what, Lord, others will fall away, but not me. Others will do, not me. Not me. And we pray, not I, but we are honest enough to admit, but Lord, if I, I pray you'd lift me up. Jesus goes on to say this in verse 30. 
But Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. I mean, like Peter stands up, bold. Lord, not me. You know what he was doing, though? He was also saying, they may, the other 11, right? These other 11 might, but not me. And Jesus, as only Jesus can, knowing all things, knowing the heart of Peter, said, Peter, Peter, man, this night. Like, think about that. He's saying, we're not talking six months from now. We're not talking six years from now. We're not talking 50 years from now. Tonight, in a few hours, you could have denied me three times. But you're going to say, not I? Now, why was Jesus saying that? Because he was trying to be mean-spirited and hurt Peter's feelings? No, he was calling Peter to really evaluate his own heart and say, Lord, maybe I do need to check my heart. Maybe I need to look inward. Peter was also maybe thinking, as some of us would, I don't like this plan. We know that's true. What did Peter say when Jesus was talking about going to the cross? No way, God. No way, Jesus. It's not going to happen. I don't like this plan. I'm going to do something about it. But in the end, he was the most humiliated of all, humanly speaking, of course. He fell away in the most humiliating fashion. And yet we know, as the Gospels go on, what did Jesus extend to Peter? Grace. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Who preaches the day of Pentecost, on the, the sermon on the day of Pentecost? Peter. One that denied him three times preaches a sermon where thousands come to Christ. That's the power of our God and restoration through grace and repentance. And so we need to be careful here. Man, Peter was so quick, and yet he was wrapped up just as so many others were. Jesus is honest with them. So here we find ourselves. The question we must each answer for ourselves is we face our own personal and national uncertainty. As things seem darker than we can imagine, how could God possibly work in any of this? How could God move in some situation like this? What's the answer for ourselves? Are we going to trust? Is it possible, you don't need to answer out loud, but is it possible that God is still active, still accomplishing his purposes when there is no indication of his activity? Is it possible, let me ask that again, you don't need to answer out loud, but just think about this. Is it possible that God is still active, still accomplishing his purposes when there is no indication of his activity? Is it possible that God is active in your world and in the world? Is it possible that God is active when everything seems to be going backwards and getting darker? Your answer to that question, and those questions, I should say, will determine your response to your or our current uncertainty. If you believe it is possible for God to be active, working, accomplishing his purposes when there is no indication of his activity that we can see in the moment, if we can see him, or not see him moving, but we still trust, when things around us seem to be going backwards, when things seem to be getting darker, do we believe that he's still active? I think if we were to interview the disciples and ask them about their darkest hours, if we were to sit with Peter or James or John or Andrew and at the end of their lives and say, okay, tell me, what was the darkest point in your life, darkest hours in your life? I wonder how many of them would say it would have been the hours that began at the Last Supper and the hours that followed that night. With the clarity of insight, if we were to ask, when did God accomplish his greatest work? The answer would be most certainly in those few hours following the Last Supper. 
And think about it. The same answer is true. Man, when were you the most uncertain? When were you the most fearful? When were you the most un, unsure of what God was doing? Man, it was, it was when Jesus opened this discussion through the Last Supper. And then we're watching this unfold. He's arrested. Then he's taken away. Then he's tried. Then he's crucified. And it was the darkest hours of our lives. And then they would say, well, when did God do the most work? And you would say, when he was arrested, when he was tried, and when he was crucified, and then he rose again. See, I think sometimes we have to realize that those three days between the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ must have been days of utter despair for the disciples. This was the culmination of God's plan of redemption. But yet the disciples, most likely those three days were just they were just wrecked. And we know what's kind of happening. They're unsure. What is it? Let's just go back to fishing, right? Let's just go back to our old way of living. I mean, you see Thomas is broken. So many struggled in this time. But what's the truth we must go back to? See, this is where truth must lead emotion. Emotion cannot lead truth. So what's the truth of this situation? When life is uncertain, God is not. He's still got the whole world in his hands. Good things come from broken things. When we can see that God is behind or in or working through the undesirable circumstances, even the ones we bring on ourselves, let me say that again. When we can see that God is behind or in or working through the undesirable circumstances, even the ones we bring on ourselves, there is a sense of purpose and peace that emerges. Now the truth is that won't get me a job necessarily, knowing that, right? God's not going to necessarily change all my circumstances, right? It's not going to necessarily magically make all my bills go away, all my stresses of life go away. It's not going to magically wave a wand and fix everything in my life that I think needs to be fixed. But it will allow you to maintain hope and faith in the meantime. As God gives you wisdom and how to address other circumstances in your life, you'll have hope and faith to know that God is in control. It will allow you to go to bed at night with the confidence that God has not abandoned you. It will motivate you and I to be on the lookout for his grace and intervention. It will keep you from leaning in direction that only makes things worse. And it will protect you from despair. When life is uncertain, God is not. He still has the whole world in his hands. I want to share with us this morning. Um, some of you may know this if you follow Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, it's a ministry that really started years and years and years ago. Um, many, maybe some of you remember back in the 90s, the group DC Talk put together a volume called Jesus Freaks. Uh, there's actually two volumes. Um, and it recounts all these stories of martyrs throughout uh, kind of the church history. Also at that point, up to that time. Well, Voice of the Martyrs worked with them to kind of compile that. And Voice of the Martyrs basically tells the stories of those who have been martyred for their faith. That's kind of the idea. And they do, uh, every year, they recognize uh, different martyrs who died for their faith. And, and they actually have a wall that they commemorate these martyrs on. And um, that day is tomorrow. And so they call it the Day of the Christian Martyr. And so when I was uh, preparing for this series... Um, and I kind of decided, okay, we would do it around this time, uh, this Sunday. Um, someone actually approached me a few weeks ago and said, hey, did you get the email from Voice of the Martyrs about the Day of the Christian Martyr? And I said, you know, I haven't seen that yet. And they said, oh, I just got it. 
you should check it out. And I looked it up, and I was telling the person, I said, well, this might actually, I mean, God might be doing something here because it's going to fall right when we start that series. And so I previewed the video and, and kind of checked it out, and it's a story of a pastor who was martyred for his faith. Now, let me just share for any young, young ones in here, or if you have children or grandchildren in here, there's no imagery of violence, no nothing like that. There's, it's just telling the story of this person, but there's no, nothing that you need to be concerned about as far as for, for little eyes. And so that's why we felt it was, again, appropriate for having kids in here to show this. And so, but I want you to listen to the story, and I want you to hear the testimony of this pastor who lost his life. And I want you to listen to a couple things. Number one, I want you to hear when it happened. That's key, because uh, we're not talking back in the 50s or 60s. Uh, so listen to when it happened. I want you to hear the heart of the pastor, but I want you also to realize, think about what we've talked about this morning, that can God actually be at work when things seem uncertain, when things don't seem like they're going like they should? Can God actually accomplish his purpose and his plan even when we don't understand the why? And so I want you to watch this video and listen to this story. In the scripture and in church history, we read stories of those who paid the ultimate price to advance God's kingdom, considering it an honor and a privilege to give even their very lives to spread the gospel and to be a faithful witness for Christ in this world. For more than 450 years, Fox's Book of Martyrs has recorded stories of martyrs, and we continue that work to this day. We also commemorate martyrs on the memorial that I'm standing in front of. But it's an important question, why do we do these things? It's not to share God's glory with men. All the glory belongs to God alone. Rather, it's so that we may be inspired by those who came before us. It was 1993 when Pastor John Paul Sankagui planted a church in a Muslim neighborhood just outside the capital city of the Central African Republic. Pastor John Paul began to work and minister in the area alongside his wife, Mary, and their children, taking every opportunity to point the local people to Jesus Christ. 20 years later, he was still ministering when civil war came to the CAR. And in the years of fighting and instability and need, many of the people in Pastor John Paul's congregation fled the area, the friendliness, and then even the tolerance of local Muslims for a Christian church began to disappear. But Pastor John Paul felt strongly that God had called him to that church. And so it was that he was at the church on February 7th, 2017, and the followers of a notorious Muslim warlord attacked the church. They shot and killed Pastor John Paul. They looted the church and then the parsonage, and then they burned both to the ground. Pastor John Paul left behind Mary after 48 years of marriage, as well as 11 children and 17 grandchildren. John Paul was one of six pastors killed in the CAR in just a six week period at the beginning of 2017. He knew the danger, he knew that his safety was at risk. And yet he also knew the call of God to shepherd his flock and to reach Muslims for Christ. He decided in his heart that answering that call was worth any risk. Today we honor the memory of Pastor John Paul Sankagui 
and his sacrifice for the cause of Christ. John Paul is a wonderful example of understanding the worth of Christ Jesus our Lord. In Revelation 12:11, we read that they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So we understand in Scripture that we overcome the enemy and the fallen world by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the word of our testimony. But the rest of the passage talks about those who loved not their lives even unto death. Pastor John Paul is a wonderful example of someone who considered the worth of Christ and the value of obeying Christ in this world to be more than the value of his very life. He considered it an honor and a privilege to stand for Christ and maintain a witness for Christ in an area of tremendous adversity, in a place where he could absolutely expect that it may cost his very life. So I want to lead us in a prayer so we can be inspired by his example to go and do likewise, to joyfully and willingly offer ourselves as a sacrifice for Christ and to advance his kingdom in the fallen world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider John Paul's sacrifice, him willingly paying the ultimate price to be a witness for you in this world, I pray that we are inspired to go and do likewise. Father, I pray that we will find it easier because of his example to give you everything and anything that we may be holding back because you are worth it. And what an honor, what a privilege for us to take part in being your ambassadors in this fallen world, Father, to bring forth your truth to your glorious name. May we be inspired to do that powerfully, effectively, and joyfully in Jesus' name. Amen.